2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/slash people today.
3: Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on episode 99, 660 BC.
0: That's interesting. Not 660s BC, but
3: 660 BC. It's the, the one year. Just one year. That's how much stuff we have. The 660s were a pretty busy time. One year,
0: 2,680 years ago. Amazing. I remember it like it was
3: yesterday.
0: <laughs> oh, no, I gave myself away as an eternal vampire.
3: <laughs> you are. That's why you know so much about history. Yeah, I was there. I've been experiencing it all these years. So, yeah. How are you doing? I'm good. Today's March 27th when we're recording this, and in the heart of the coronavirus outbreak in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, USA, I'm, I'm in quarantine with my daughter, Lily. She's a musician from Brooklyn. So they've asked everybody that's been to New York City to quarantine for 14 days. So today's day seven for us. And um, I'm to stay calm, I'm channeling a line in one of her songs. Has the madness gotten into you? Breathe. So I'm trying to breathe, stay calm, and stay quarantined. And here is a sample of Lily's song,
0: Madness. If you want to hear the whole song... Check it out at the end of the episode. I posted a whole song there Thank you, Lily. Yes, she's one of my favorites. There is uh, quarantine going on here as well. Yeah, L- lots of pandemic badness in Sweden right now. Yeah, so hope this is way better when you hear this. Let's let's definitely hope this
3: is way better when you hear this. Yeah, and that civilization still exists. Yes, you can listen to this episode, and that we still exist, especially both of us, especially you, Dan. Oh.
0: Hopefully, otherwise this episode will be quite tragic. It would be,
3: be posthumous. Maybe yeah. that'll be my fame, Your posthumous <laughs> episode.
0: <laughs> Terrible. Um, so, all right. Uh, some Hesiod and Homer quotes. Yeah. Got any? For a man, wins nothing better than a good wife, and then again, nothing deadlier than a bad <laughs>
3: wife. That's Hesiod. <laughs> right, I got one from Hesiod. Do not get a name as overly lavish or too inhospitable. My name, Bernie Mayapolsky, is pretty inhospitable. Yours is easier. <laughs> what is an overly lavish name? Maybe an overly lavish name would be something like, something like, oh. Ashur Nasir Yeah, something like that. Or Hostis Tostilius. No, Tilius Hostilius.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, All right, here's a Homer quote. I guess some people never change, or they quickly change,
3: and then quickly change back. Very true, right? Homer knows his stuff. He did. So here's another Homer one. For a friend with an understanding heart is worth no less than a brother. (laughs) Uh, That's true. It it seems to be a lot of... um... Um,
0: self-explanatory things or naturally true things that they say, but they are probably the first people who say it in text. Yeah. And then it became, like, eternally true things. Yes,
3: wisdom of the ages. Yeah. So, yeah, we're here in 660, and uh, we're going to do this whole episode just on 660. That's crazy. I know. So, we had Olympics in 660. And, it and now,
0: now the sport news from Six Sixty will be much more important, as there is no sport going on right now yeah. in March, yes. two thousand twenty.
3: Everybody you want so to know. Go
0: back to old sports.
3: Yes, <laughs> and, and rewatch the Six Sixties BC Olympics. That's a great. We can make a movie. That would be interesting.
0: I can't make movies anymore. Hollywood has found. We we'll have
3: to do it in my our, My house. Uh, you can do uh, like uh, animated movies. That's an idea. Yeah. yeah, I have time. I'll take a class. Learn how to draw. Like, oh okay <laughs> good it's luck. like groundhog day you just have all this time and just keep doing things over and over <laughs> <laughs> Well, i'm actually
0: so busy right now because podcasting is
3: uh, important yeah. in quarantine days yeah i bet i'm keeping myself busy too good do you get enough exercise i'm trying to i have a bench here so i use some weights and i try to go for a walk or a run i should do more Lily and I watched did a a video from YouTube. We did some exercise. So I should I'm eating um, too much though for sure.
0: (laughs) Same here. (laughs) But it's good to fatten up for the apocalypse. Exactly. But imagine yourself as Kionis of Sparta. That you are as athletic as him. You try to be like him. That's a good idea. Because he won the dialus and the stadium again. He's like rocking the Olympics. Nobody has a chance. He's he's like. It's a dynasty for him. Yeah, Kyonis of Sparta knows what he what he's doing.
3: Definitely. So yeah, this other little story. This is great because I had this story on our radar since six seventy, and we'll, when we get to it, we'll know why. Because um, it it's just sort of been it's um it's funny, it's a really interesting story. And it's pretty we're pretty sure it's from the twenty sixth dynasty, which is called the Ooh. Saite the Saite period, and this is um the inventory Stella and I, Dan, you know about this, right? I know about it because I have received a perfect script from you. <laughs> You're telling them
0: how the sausage is made. <laughs> yeah okay, the inventory Stella was uncovered in eighteen fifty eight at Giza by the French archaeologist Auguste Mariette. It is 30 inches high, 15 inches wide, and contains four registers of inscriptions and relief carvings of divine statues. So this French guy found the stele in the rubble out front of the farthest left little pyramid to the east of the Great Pyramid. These little pyramids were made for like wives and daughters of Khufu. Khufu is the guy who's buried in the Great Pyramid of the 4th Dynasty. He was uh, the Rage in 2589 to 2566 BC. That is way before our narrative. So each of these three little pyramids had a small mortar temple to its east, mirroring the larger arrangement of the Great Pyramid. Each queen or daughter buried there, would have her own mortuary cult, and some priests, to service her in the afterlife. This is so expensive. Khufu did that as well, but he had it on a much larger scale. The inscription caused confusion in 1858, and the inscription has become the darling of many people on the fringe. That is people who don't study history the right way. but think they know more than the people that actually study history. Uh, They have an obsession with trying to establish that the pyramids and the swings are thousands of years older than anyone thought. And were built by some vague, unproven and lost advanced civilization that existed prior to the Egyptians. The old 12,000 years old Atlantis or aliens. Uh, And this stele helps them. Here's a professional translation of the stele. Live the Horus Medjed, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Cheops, given life, he found the house of Isis, mistress of the pyramids, next to the house of Haurun, northwest of the house of Osiris, lord of Rasetao. He rebuilt the pyramid of the king's daughters, Hinutzen, beside this temple. He made an inventory, carved on a stele for his mother Isis, the mother of the god Hathor, mistress of the sky. He restored for her the divine offerings and rebuilt her temple in stone, that which she found in ruins being renewed, and the gods in their place.
2: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Okay, so the inscription states
0: that Khufu was supposed to have rebuilt the pyramid of the king's daughter Hinutsen beside this temple. This is one of the little pyramids built for one of Khufu's wives or daughters. The temple in question is today's jumble of ruins out front of what was originally the Little Pyramids Mortuary Chapel. The chapel in the description is referred to as the House of Isis, Mistress of the Pyramids. In other words, It was a chapel dedicated to Isis, the great mother goddess. We know today that the old mortuary chapel really did become a temple of Isis, but not in Khufu's time. On archaeological grounds, the conversion to the temple can be dated to sometime in the third intermediate period. That is right before we started this podcast. We can narrow it down to the reign of Sussanus I, who died in 1001 BCE in the 21st dynasty, based on his cartouche found in ruins. By the time of the Third Intermediate Period, the monuments on the Giza Plateau had been abandoned for more than a thousand years. So when is this stay from and why are we talking about it when talking about the 660s? First of all, it's immediately noticeable that in style and form the style is not of the type of the old kingdom. This doesn't look at all like an old kingdom thing. But a bigger problem is the name Harun in the inscription. This is a reference to the great swings. Harun was originally a Canaanite god and one of the manifestations of Baal. Egypt eventually assimilated this deity as it did numerous foreign gods and goddesses. But Harun did not end up becoming part of the, of the Egyptian pantheon until the new kingdom. Only at some time later was Haroon associated with the Swinx. To the point that Haroon became a name for the Swinx. How this happened is not known. But it may have been because of Canaanite workers living in the area. Maybe they identified the Swinx with their deity Haroon. But to be certain... Referring to the swings as Harun is a noticeable anachronism. We don't even know what the Egyptians of the old kingdom might have called the Swinx. We have no idea. More anachronism appear on the stale. The stale include relief carvings of divine statues. This is the inventory portion of the stale. It's a listing of statues that were once featured in the little temple to Isis. The goddess herself is a problem, as is the mention of Osiris. Neither of these deities appear to have been part of Egyptian worship until the end of the 5th dynasty. But the pyramids are from the 4th dynasty. For that matter, the title attributed to Isis on the daily, Mistress of the Pyramids, is nowhere else given to her in Egyptian history. Same with other gods on it. Nephthys, Herendotes, and Harmakis did not exist in Khufu's time. Another problem is the mention of the king's daughter She She's supposedly the royal daughter for whom the little pyramid was built. But Khufu didn't have a daughter named Henutsen. She's an invention for the narrative. With everything I said here, this daily cannot date to the old kingdom. But when is it from? I mentioned the little temple to Isis, was first established in the third intermediate period, probably in the 21st dynasty. The Giza plateau fell into ruins after this period and sat abandoned for a number of centuries. Until Semeticus founded the 26th dynasty in the 660s BC. Semeticus was restoring Egypt. He was, after all, the first Egyptian pharaoh for a very long time. And a lot of attention was given to Giza, which experienced the renaissance. It was like, these gigantic pyramids, I must incorporate them in my propaganda. The stele is of the style and form of the 26th dynasty, as we mentioned is known as the Said period. While many of the deities mentioned on the stele were unknown in Khufu's time, they all would have been familiar to the Egyptians of the 660s BC. The stele was simply part of the plan, to bring grandeur back to Giza, most scholars today agree that the inventory stele dates to the twenty-sixth dynasty. Therefore, the stele can be thought of as a pious fraud. So, um, no Atlanteans, no aliens, no Bigfoot, nope. no Loch Ness monster,
3: <laughs> no Chupacabra. Yeah, nope. They they just uh, it was a. It's funny you when know, you think about it, like somebody would, we would think somebody would make an ancient fraud, you know, and make something ancient today. Yeah. So, this is in the ancient days making something even more ancient.
0: Yeah, 2000 years right? more ancient.
3: Right. It'd be like somebody today making something from the time of Jesus. Yeah, or the Vikings doing something from Ashurman Sipal. Oh, that would be interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Alternate history, though. The, the, Asher Nasapal recruits Vikings.
0: Well, they found uh, a Buddha figure in uh, in Viking horde here in Sweden. Wow. Uh-huh. But uh, the Buddha figure was probably not from Buddha's time, of course. No. it's more recent.
3: Yeah, that's but interesting. They,
0: they, they, that's an interesting content of a Viking
3: horde. I would think, yeah. The I mean, you see how humanity really spreads around, right? I mean, if there was a coronavirus on that... Little Buddha. Could have got all the way up there. Oh yeah, they had their shares of pandemic. Correct. Poor guys. How did you find all this stuff? It, um you know, I usually search for the by the decades and then that came up and you know it was just it's some you know, it's a little little article, but I do have to give thanks to um I, I studied it a lot, and then there's um Kem Tesh. He is there is his article was the best on the website ancientneareast.org. So um, I even posted a couple questions to him, and he respond him or he she, him or her I'm not sure, and he yeah. responded with some comments. So thank you, Kemtesh, for the for that detailed information. Thank you very much, Kemtesh. Yes. So where are we going now? Hey, we can actually go to the Far East again. We haven't been there in a while. To China eventually. Let's maybe we could start in Japan. In Japan. Yep. Okay. have we ever been to japan that sounds
0: like uh, no i haven't wow i was supposed to go when i um was to receive my second degree black belt oh in nimpo taiyutsu but i never got my second degree black belt because i quit ah. and took up kickboxing instead ah.
3: has the podcast ever been to japan
0: no, because everything is legendary in Japan, and I will now think that this is legendary stuff, too, that you are trying to bring in here.
3: <laughs> but, to, but it's true, and it will be. I'm pretty sure it is legendary. But although this yeah. is supposed this would be the official start of Japanese history. Go Japan! Yes, because this is when their first emperor is from 660 BC. The first emperor of Japan, as legend okay. puts it. And his name is Jimmu. He's the first emperor in the current unbroken line of Japanese emperors. The current emperor, Emperor Nahuhito, is believed to be his direct descendant, and he's the 126th monarch, according to the traditional order of succession, all the way back to Jimmu.
0: This sounds a bit like the unbroken line of Syrian kings, Mm. but they don't claim to have 2700
3: years. No, in their dynasty. Not not quite. Wow. I don't think they claim half of this kind of stuff. So Jimu,
0: first emperor.
3: Yeah, he was the, so it wasn't until the 700s AD that they wrote him down as the first emperor, so that was during some drama at that time to give mm. um legitimacy to the current emperor in the 700s. You know, because um, Jimmu lived for 126 years, he's the direct mm-hmm. descendant of the sun goddess Amaterasu. Oh, who, she was his great grandmother on his father's side.
0: <laughs> okay, so Amaterasu uh, did uh, hang around at about 1000 BC or something.
3: Yeah, yeah. She, well, she, I mean, on, she may be eternal.
0: She came down to Earth and uh, started a lineage of emperors. So story checks
3: out yeah yep she did that's a whole other story we won't get into all that because he's got other people in his extended family he's got the storm god so oh. he's definitely in the same category as our good friend in womb tullius hostilius <laughs> 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 why do you think i was going to say someone else <laughs> no, no no never.
0: um yeah tullius hostilius obviously a legendary guy yeah. But we are
3: getting to Rome very soon. Yes. My good friend. Oh, in the 610s. I can't wait. So, yeah, the period before Jimmu became emperor, that's known as the Age of the Gods in the Japanese Shinto religion. And there are definitely some cool stories there, like the Greeks with their titans. There's the land of the dead, two of, until the wife dies, and she becomes a rotting corpse covered with maggots, so the her husband doesn't love her anymore. But these two gave birth to like all the Japanese islands and all these things. But then when she died and went to the land of the dead, he went back to get her. And then when he saw her covered in maggots and stuff, he was mortified. So he ran and she chased after him. And my favorite line is when she yelled out to him, I will kill 1,000 people every day. And then he yelled back, then then 1,500 will be born every day. That's the story of you know more people are born than die.
0: That explains the the population increase in Japan yeah. since this time.
3: <laughs> it's pretty yeah, that's a pretty high um, rate that would be. So yeah, at any rate, after some battles, this Jim he is said to as a, to have ascended the throne of Japan, and then he yeah. scaled the Nara Mountain to survey the island sea he now controlled, and he remarked that it was shaped like the heart rings made by mating dragonflies. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. So then a mosquito tried to bite him and steal his royal blood, but since he was a god incarnate, uh, a dragonfly came along and killed the mosquito. So ja- Japan received its classical name, the Dragonfly Islands. Oh, okay. But see, that's right. But like before, this story still has some implications in our time. Like I said, the current emperor supposedly is linked to him. But during the uh, Meiji Restoration, the veneration of Emperor Jimmu was a central component of the imperial cult. So in 1873, a holiday was established. Uh, It's February 11th to commemorate the anniversary of Jimmu's ascension to the throne. But um, Mm yep. And now you're telling me that
0: I missed it on February
3: 11th. Yeah, we missed it. I, I didn't commemorate the anniversary of Jimmy's ascension. It's, but the Japanese did. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure they did. So, yeah, they call it National Foundation Day to this day. Yes.
0: Yes, it was suspended after World War
3: II. hmm It was suspended, they, yeah. Just because they, they, they seemed it was involved. too closely associated with the emperor system. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I bet they had a bit uh, bad conscience about stuff.
3: Yeah, well, you can go to the tour. There's a it's a tourist site today. It's in uh, Kashihara City,
0: and the oh, the Shrine of Jimu.
3: Yep. So you can go and I see love that. Happened right yeah. here in 660, founding of Japan.
0: It makes you wonder what really happened in Japan because uh, there is. Uh,
3: it seems to happen
0: so much later than in China. The China has been around as a legitimate kingdom for a long time now. Yeah. But Japan, I think the first mention of Japan is about 100 AD or something, when some Chinese emperor mentions that there is an island and there are some weird people on it. <laughs> it's right to the east. Don't go there.
3: Yeah, they were pirates, right? They, th- they called them pirates, I think, a lot. I think they couldn't didn't have any boats in 100 AD, but I'm not sure. I think that they, you know, thousands and thousands of years before Japan probably wasn't an island, so people walked to it, and that's oh. how it got populated. Because there are some Caucasian-type pe- um, people. The Ainu, yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, let's yeah. Uh, not uh, speculate too much about Japanese yeah, we'll because big most of this is, problem. yes. So let's stick to six sixties. Thank you.
3: So yeah, and China. Yeah, back to China now. Remember this guy Guan Zong? Was he the guy that almost got pickled? Yeah, remember, <laughs> he almost got <laughs> pickled. <laughs> but he didn't get pickled no.
0: because he was quite the orator and uh, explained to people why they shouldn't pickle him.
3: Yeah, he did. He's he's like um, he's like Neko. Yeah, good sweet talker. <laughs> he's a survivor.
0: Yep, he sure is. So now he's the advisor of Duke Huan and the chancellor of Qi. Yes. Very nice.
3: Yep, and he had this he has a work called the Guanzi, which is an, it's an it's a, a text on how to rule pe- how to be a ruler, economic theory, these kind of things. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. He's credited as the author and I'm surely he had something to do with it, but it's been edited and rewritten so, like most ancient works, we know he didn't write the whole thing from start to finish as it exists today. But he oh. is credited with it. Okay. there's a Good work. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool stuff in there. So, yeah, he's known as a wise philosopher, an economist, and a statesman. And, re- importantly, though, as a reformer. And this is cool. His most famous fiscal pol- policy is known as Balancing the Light and the Heavy. And this was associated with um, the salt and iron monopolies. Historians usually credit him for introducing state monopolies controlling salt and iron. And here's how it worked. He believed that monopolizing natural resources was helpful in improving government income with fewer complaints from the public than raising taxes. So it makes sense. You get the same money, but you don't have to raise taxes. So true today. Offset, like... In the U.S., people will complain about their taxes but pay a ton of money for their cable. So if you got free cable, but you'd pay. So anyway, he described the strategy to the Duke as managing the mountain and the sea, which refers to iron mined from the mountains and salt from the sea. Under this policy, private businesses who produce salt by boiling seawater and provide iron by mining must sell all their output to the government, and then the government resells the refined salt and iron products with a huge price gap to all the households in the state of Qi or Qi. How, why iron and salt Uh, specifically? Well, those are good raw resources that they could could get. Those are sort of like basic resources. So you need iron for everything, all your tools, different types of things like that. Um, And then salt is very... Common commodity. You remember Gandhi. The British wouldn't let the the, the Indian Indians um, buy their own salt. So Gandhi had the the march to the sea to go pick up his own salt. Basically saying you can't make us pay you for salt. I,
0: I imagine that there are more important resources such as rice, but I think the reason he's choosing salt and iron is the fact that it is easy to control, that you know where the mines are. Right. It's very visible if you have uh, salt fields. Right. And they are always by the sea. Right. So you can sort of find these things, whereas you can do rice all over China, so right.
3: that's very hard to And control. it would be right. At that time, you wouldn't have factory farming, but you would have factory mining and factory salt boiling. Yeah. You would have to have a so factory farm of rice.
0: I suppose that is what makes just uh, yes, these two resources so good right. for this state monopoly.
3: Yeah, that's pretty neat. And then he had some political reforms too. Um, instead of using the traditional aristocracy for manpower, he applied to uh, levies to the village units directly. He developed. Is this military manpower or work manpower? Uh both. Oh, yep. And even you know, for the gov- for talented for governors and things like that, instead of just hereditary aristocrats, he looked for people from the villages that were capable. Oh, that's a big change. Mm-hmm. And this is a good one. He's credited for creating the first official government-sponsored brothel, which funded the government treasury. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. I guess it was a good business. To, you know, make it, we could expre- maybe they have, maybe that's the U.S.'s um, solution. They could end our debt. Just in one big brothel. Uh, d- 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 don't go there. No, I don't. I don't. Um, <laughs> I don't agree with that policy.
0: <laughs> it worked in 660 BC in China, obviously. But yes, probably not uh, correct. Today. No, absolutely not. I prefer the sacred prostitutes that went to. <laughs> <laughs> to Carthage yeah. back in episode back in the episode of Dido and Carthage mm-hmm. okay uh, anything else about this is a great Guanzhong? quote
3: Could you, would you redo this quote I like this it's a really interesting quote
0: oh it's a quote about putting people's prosperity before other concerns about the state so Guangxiong says to make the people prosperous is the top priority in running a state Prosperous people are easy to manage, while poor people are difficult to handle. Why is that? Is it because if they are prosperous, they will be attached to their native land. If they are thus attached, they will defer to their superiors and avoid committing crimes for fear of punishment. And if they are afraid of punishment, they are easy to manage. But if they are poor, They will not be attached to their dwelling place. If they are not thus attached, they will be defiant against their superiors and tend to rebel. And if they tend to rebel, they will be difficult to handle. Hence, a well-managed state must first be prosperous, while one in disorder, suffering from poverty. Therefore, a ruler good at statecraft must first make people wealthy before governing them. Isn't that great? Yeah, sounds brilliant
3: and very true. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the you know income inequality is going to eventually cost you more money. So if you're a plutocrat and you have tons of money, you better to give some of it back down through the people, or they're going to rebel against you. And then that's basically the point. People seem to have known this thousands of years ago. This guy did anyway. Yeah. Uh, here's another good
0: one. He who wins the heart of all people under heaven is the noblest ru- noblest ruler, while he who rules with the support of only half the population is a hegemon. Therefore, a noble ruler treats worthy men with courtesy and shares wealth with all his subjects under heaven.
3: It's the same point, right? Pretty much, Let's yeah. Last one. I mean, or sort of like, you know, like a divide and conquer type of thing, or rabble rousers, you know, or maybe if you're... a Democrat, you only speak to Democrats, or vice versa. You gotta try to be the ruler of everybody. Sounds wise.
0: So these ideas were the core of his policies regarding state, economy, and finance. But the Duke Huan of Qi, who was probably amazed by all this stuff that was happening, he asked Guangzhong about wealth management. And Guangzhou replied The noble ruler stores wealth among the people. The hegemon stores wealth among high-ranking officials, while he who is about to ruin the state stores wealth in a money locker. Please loan out the money stored in santai area to people at Shenyang and then in Lutai area to those at Yijin and announce to the people that, as the sovereign would not be poor if the people are rich, nor would he be rich if the people are poor, there would be no tax in money. And no money stored in state treasury, but all wealth will be stored with the people. This sounds super radical, mm-hmm. and uh, very hard. To, did did this actually happen?
3: You know, it's probably the push and the pull of all things. If you try to do it, you get if you get halfway there, it's better than going the other way and having an anarchy and or having rebellions and mass poverty and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about this market economy. Yeah, in so from spine. my
3: readings and research, it's, some historians believe that there was already a market economy for you know thousands of years, at, even at his time. In the times of the Shenyang, which is around 2700 BC, they taught people to quote, open the market at noontime for all under heaven to come, bringing all kinds of commodities and make exchanges to get what they each need before leaving. So by this time, it, you know, the economy had grown quite mature. And this is the spring and autumn period that we're in. Yeah. And um, they say the maturity of the market economy at that time was shown in some uh, about 10 different ways. So there were commodity exchange exchange markets all over the state. Division of labor was already at an advanced stage with a clear distinction between public and private ownership of property. There had appeared a whole class of free city dwellers, and some of these have even accomplished a lot of, or they should say accumulated a lot of capital. And money, not sure exactly what they mean by money. We don't really think that there was, you know, coin money. It, you
0: should listen to the uh, ancient uh, money episode, one of the early ones we did.
3: But I mean, in 3000 BC. We actually BC, talk about China. But the, he's talking about three thousand twenty seven hundred BC. Did they have it that long ago?
0: No, I think there there was some sort of... Of course, you can always have like valuable metals and standard yeah. weights. And they stuff. had to have
3: some sort of standard, exactly. Because then, you know, they they had a state and private credit systems. Yeah. Free trading of land, hired labor, and a smooth flow of exchanges among a variety of other commodities. Free competition in the markets, and even though it was regulated by the state under the rule of law. Free trade oh. among the different states. Two-way regu- regulation by the government of the markets through control of the currency and grain. So yeah, you're right, there ought to be money. And a preliminary financial system.
0: So, I don't think there was money, but there was like standardized weights and uh, seashells and stuff.
3: That's funny. Um, We think that would be funny to to give seashells, but imagine if somebody were to come from the past and come to us and see us given a piece of paper.
0: (laughs) Or not even that anymore.
3: Here, I'm going to email you. It's like,
0: yeah. And of course, the the Assyrians had some sort of free market, but uh, nothing like this.
3: Right. And then if this they just went and took money, I mean you know, they they needed a little more money, they just went and knocked over a temple somewhere, brought back all the stuff. <laughs> wow. Impressive. Yeah. So uh there's like one last little cool little story. And this is one they you know, the historians after a while figure it probably didn't really happen or come from this time, but it's a story that's related to this time and related to um Guan Guanzong. So I think it's pretty cool. I like to tell you about it. It's in his uh, in the Guanzi chapter 84. It says the Duke wanted to nullify nullify the threat from an enemy, that Heng Shan. And this Heng Shan was famous for making weapons. Right? So Guanzang ordered all his officials to buy a large quantity of arms from Heng Shan. So because of that, prices started to go up for weapons and arms. So after 10 months, other states started getting worried that the prices would keep rising, so they also started buying. So then prices went up even more, so that almost all the households in Hengshan switched switched to making weapons instead of farming rice. So then a year later, Guanzang ordered his officials to buy rice from another state, the state of Zhao, at three times the normal rate. So now seeing... The huge profits in rice. The state of Hengshan sold whatever rice it had in inventory to Qi. So, so then Qi, Qi, um, Guanzhong province, invaded Hengshan, who had no weapons and no rice, so they had to surrender right away.
0: Very costly but efficient.
3: (laughs) Yeah, like not
0: economic warfare at its finest,
3: without firing a shot. I love that. And a good moral lesson, right? if nothing else. It's like the tulip um, crisis in Europe, Holland, in the Middle Ages. Oh, yeah, that's
0: a story and it's Right.
3: Own. Yeah. But that means
0: we are done with the 660s BC. Yes,
3: we are done with the 660s BC.
0: And we're going to the 650s. We will
3: be going to the 650s, and being here in quarantine, I guess I have time to study it a lot. Please do. I will. You know what's going to happen, I though. Bet. So remember the last episodes. I was saying it's great that I can go year by year, and then I also said, "Oh, we lost that. Uh, we lost some of those um, record, those records, and for a couple of decades. So I know a lot of things that happened in the six fifties, but we may have a little more trouble dating them year by year. But I will do my best. Oh.
0: I believe your best will be good enough. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, Thank you. Well,
0: thank you for this excellent research, and I can't wait to hear about the 650s. Yeah, oh,
3: there's definitely a lot going on. The Assyrians especially got some stuff going on. Yeah, the Ashurbanipal. Paul. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for
0: listening, dear listeners, and thanks to everyone who sponsors the podcast on Patreon. And thank you, Bernie.
3: Thank you again, Dan. You know, I enjoy doing this, and thanks to all the listeners. And again, if you have any suggestions for me for the 650s please pass them along find me on or Facebook. the 640s and the 640s I, I could do them all yeah talk to you later talk to you later
1: if you enjoyed this podcast please consider supporting us on patreon patreon.com slash fan of history just a dollar an episode would help us out thanks and see you next time